0: Welcome to another episode of the Dan Norton Show. Today, I am here with Dave Goodman. Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So, uh, let me just uh, have you introduce yourself a little bit to my audience. I, I encountered you, I think, on Facebook. We just got to, uh, we connected through Facebook, and uh, I recently put out a post which you had responded to and you said you were having, interested in having some discussion. So um, how about we start by, oh, by the way, I'm wearing shades because uh, it's very sunny out here where I am. So normally I'm not, not doing that, but for the audience, that's why I'm wearing shades today. Um, So Dave, can you just tell us a little about yourself by way of introduction and then um, uh, maybe mention whatever topics you were interested in talking about?
1: sure so uh, I'm from New York City and I got into objectivism in high school became really obsessed and passionate about the philosophy Um, it it definitely changed my life and I've been following objectivists on YouTube you know starting with your own Brooke uh, to everyone else at ARI then I discovered you through uh, some debates I think the first one where I discovered you was with Econ Boy Um, that was a bit of a contentious interview but I thought oh this is interesting kind of I I like seeing that um more localized objectivists are starting channels rather than it coming from ARI or from larger organizations We get more grassroots things like with you know Rukka Ali and Ayn Rand UK and then your channel is growing so it's nice to see uh, uh progress in the movement
0: okay yeah so um this was, you said in high school is when you first read Ayn Rand's, which I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of when that, I don't want you to date yourself. You don't to. Oh, no, like, I'm 32.
1: Like... I'm, I'm pretty young. So I was 16. So this is about 16 years ago. Okay. I started, okay. I discovered Ayn Rand. And uh, it seemed so obvious to me that this was correct, but everyone was so hostile. So I'm, I'm thinking, God, what, what is going on? Um, there's obviously some kind of sickness in the culture where people can't integrate and they're not looking at reality. They're not truth seeking. And how come I am? So let me find other people like me and maybe we could solve this puzzle and how to fix the culture.
0: Okay. So you've been around for quite a while in the objectives movement over a decade. And um, if you don't mind saying, I'm curious, uh, what do you do? Like, do you work somewhere or? Yeah. So I have a staging
1: company. Uh, Me and my business partner have one in New York. We do, um, you know, like when you sell your condo, we stage it with furniture. Um, But our thing is it's cardboard furniture. It's kind of a unique thing. So it's a lot cheaper than traditional staging. It just comes, we just fold it up and and place it. And then when, after you sell the property, we just take it away.
0: Okay. So kind of in the, uh, some aspect of the real estate business, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, what were you interested in discussing today? Did you have a few topics in mind?
1: Yeah, I was kind of interested in, yeah, how you discovered Ayn Rand and objectivism, uh, what made you decide to promote it actively with a YouTube channel. Um, And obviously, I know you have a PhD in philosophy. And usually people who get to PhD are you know reject ideas of reality and logic but you see, you were able to hold on to reality long enough to get the phd so um i guess those issues and then you know how you see the objectivist movement uh progressing now um where you see your channel going you know in the future um so i thought you know we'd start with some of those
0: okay sure so i first read ayn rand in 97 1997 I was uh, 17, almost 18, so I'm 43 now, and I started with a nonfiction Philosophy Who Needs It, recommended to me by my brother, and I was blown away by it. I I fell in love with her ideas. I I read all the nonfiction first, and then uh, a year later started with the fiction. I was already interested in philosophy before I read Ayn Rand, actually, Um, so I wanted to get straight to the philosophy. I didn't want to read a whole story. Um, Me too. I, so in my case, I, I think it made sense to start with the nonfiction, but I love the fiction too. Um, and I've I read all her major fiction works and um, I've been interested in an intellectual or philosophical career for, I guess, since uh, maybe late high school, early college, around the time I first Red Ayn Rand, so I went on to major in philosophy at uh, University of Virginia. That's where I did my bachelor's, and then, um, but I, I was somewhat disillusioned with the uh, experience of being in academia. I didn't. I mean. Having read Ayn Rand, it's, it, was, it was so different, her approach to philosophy, than the sort of approach you get in academia. It's, her approach seems much more relevant to life, much more um, passionate, uh, her, her writings, while at the same time being extremely clear. So there's this um, wonderful combination of reason and emotion in Ayn Rand's writings. Uh, which is is quite alien to the sort of uh, dry academic writing you get in um, in academia. So I was turned off from that, and I decided not to pursue graduate school uh, immediately after finishing my undergrad degree. So I, I um, my first thing out of undergrad was I actually worked for the Ayn Rand Institute. Okay. I, I moved to California, and uh, I, I worked in an administrative position, mostly, I was there for a few years. But then I decided, you know, I think I want to give uh, graduate school another chance. So I think I had some cooled off. I I was very, um, as many new objectivists, people new to objectivism are, they get very passionate and worked up about the ideas. And they have these very antagonistic, hostile arguments with people. And there was definitely a phase uh, I went through a year or two um, of that. And, you know, I was pretty combative at times, uh, maybe even with some some professors. Um, so, but that had kind of, I had, I had mellowed out a bit and I realized over time, you know, it's not really accomplishing much except for making me <laughs> miserable um, or that might be overstating it, but it was not a very um, pleasant state to constantly be in this combative sort of attitude. So I focused more on um, just uh, my own values and what can I do to make my life go well. And um, so after I had cooled down a bit, so to speak, um, I think I was more open to the idea of graduate school and realizing, hey, maybe I can just I can get a, an advanced degree in the subject and that can somehow further my career. Um, I was very passionate about objectivism from the beginning, wanted to have that play a, a, a central or very important, at least, role in my life. And I thought having an advanced degree in philosophy might be a way to do that. Um, So I kept my eye on the prize instead of worrying about some annoying argument that I had to read in academic literature or or that some professor made. I just thought to myself, by doing this, by getting this degree, I can advance my career. And that's the most important thing, not changing some professor's mind about some, some claim he's made. Uh, so I think I was mentally in a much better place a few years later after I initially discovered Rand to be able to tolerate um, the sort of things you have to read in academia to to get through a degree in philosophy so um, <clears throat> after many years almost a, about a decade actually being out of academia, uh, I went back in got a master's degree at california state University long beach and then um went straight for a PhD after that at uh, UC Davis. And uh, traditionally, um, people who go into academia and philosophy, they are planning to pursue a job as a professor once they finish. And that's what I thought I would probably do when I entered my, my PhD degree. But about halfway into it, I started to think, mm, maybe there's something else out there that's more appealing to me, and I started to um, watch Alex Epstein. He was actually an inspiration to me. He's a intellectual who, he also spent some time at the Ayn Rand Institute, but then he went off and he started his own uh, Center for Industrial Progress. And he's uh, done very well for himself as an independent sort of intellectual outside of academia. And I thought, hmm, maybe if if I could do something like that, um, not in the energy field as he does, but something More directly related to philosophy and promoting Ayn Rand's, that would be really fun. I think I would enjoy that a lot. So, and YouTube became a thing uh, Mm -hmm. over the course of all these years. Like when I entered as an undergraduate back in the late 90s, early 2000s, YouTube didn't even exist. So, there's no, it wasn't even on my radar as a possibility that this is something you could do as a career. Um, But as these sorts of technologies uh, came into being over time, uh, it started to give me new ideas on the sort of career I can make for myself. So uh, late in my uh, PhD degree, I thought maybe I'm just gonna try this. I'm gonna start a YouTube channel doing what I love, which is, you know, focused on focusing on objectivism and promoting it to the world. Mm -hmm. And let, let me just see what happens. That's what I decided to do. Uh, and I still have to do other things to support myself financially because um, it's very hard to make a living uh, on YouTube. You need a massive audience, efficient mm-hmm. revenue uh, to actually sustain yourself. So I'm doing some other things. Like I've, I've driven for DoorDash. That's um, my main money maker. But I've also done tutoring, um, uh, like homeschooling that sort of thing. I have got a few students so I, I have a few different streams of income, um, but I hope to eventually grow my channel large enough so that I don't have to do anything else and I can just focus full-time on that. So maybe I can put in a plug here for my channel if you wanna help, help me uh, grow my channel, get to that point. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel, obviously, if you're watching this and i um, always trying to get more subscribers. I also have a, a Patreon account. So if you wanna support me through Patreon or PayPal, uh, those are things you can do to help me out. So I think that was a pretty long answer to your original question. So let me just stop here.
1: No, that was good. Um, let's see. So how, okay. When you started the channel, how were you able to get some kind of, I'd say relatively high profile lefty uh, content creators to agree to debate you? Like, I guess Econ Boy is relatively new. And who was the most recent one? It was the guy with kind of blondish hair, curly hair.
0: Um, Uh, there was you might be thinking of t-jump i think that's him i think he has the dyed dyed blonde hair Um, he's not the most recent but he was uh yeah there have been a few since then actually i I just debated hunter avalon um he's a youtuber with over half a million subscribers it's actually the largest or second largest channel i've been on after sam cedar his channel um
1: oh where i remember oh yeah i remember that you were the uh, but that wasn't on video but um so those were good debates i like the guy with curly hair i think he was i mean there's certainly a lot of evasion on that side but i think he had a hard time disputing some of your your arguments because again objectivism is true so it just makes sense it's hard to kind of you know engage in mental gymnastics forever but how did they, did you just send them an email or message them on YouTube and, and they just agreed? They thought, okay, I'll debate this this new up and coming guy who likes Ayn Rand.
0: It could be uh, an email. Sometimes that's how I make my first contact or uh, sometimes I just use Twitter. I'll just send them a, a DM on Twitter or maybe on Discord. Um, Facebook. I've gotten a few. So various social media. I'm, so I'm on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Discord. So I think those are probably the, the, the main social media platforms I use. And then there's also just regular email. So there's a variety of ways I get in touch with people. And then, you know, once I make contact, I'll, I'll usually just include a link to my channel so they can check me out and see if I'm someone that they would be interested in having a conversation or debate with. And then uh, some of them say yes. Some of them say no, some are just never get back to me. Um, But then there are also some like Sam Cedar where Mm -hmm. he's just got a call in show. So there's no preliminary, it's not a scheduled debate. It's just got an open line and he just takes callers. Um, That was also true of this last one, Hunter Avalon. He has a discord server um, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know discord that's it's not as commonly well known as like facebook or twitter but it, this is just another um it's it's kind of there's these private servers which you can become a member of very easily um and then uh a, a lot of youtubers have have a, a private server on discord and you can join these servers and get in touch with people that way mm. um but then uh there there's some people like um hunter avalon which uh he you connect with him through discord. He's got a debate like sub channel within his server. And then he'll just, he'll pull you onto his show whenever he wants to take your call. And that's how I, I got on uh, my last debate with him.
1: Well, Sam Cedar, it's so tricky because he's again, such a dishonest character. Um, He asked you a question about, uh, I remember taking penicillin, I believe if uh, in terms of communal illness and weakening the power of penicillin, and how that would, you know, correspond with rational self-interest. Um, I think you were kind of, you weren't quite sure how to address that. Honestly, I'm not quite sure how to do that as well. I feel like I would just take the penicillin and then in a free market, people would develop new drugs that don't have that problem.
0: Um, yeah, he was asking about antibiotics. Right. Right. And uh, he, he was trying to make the point that there's a conflict between what's good for the individual and what's good for society. And I think he was arguing that's, well, it's in the individual's self-interest to just take a bunch of um, antibiotics. So you're become resistant to all these diseases. But if you do that, then you can create these things called superorganisms. organisms. So um, I guess the Uh, bacteria can become resistant uh, to certain antibiotics so if you take a lot yourself then you produce these uh, uh, resistant strains of bacteria which can then go around and affect other people in society which uh, so isn't there a conflict between what's good for you to do and then what's good for society and I wasn't sure off the top of my head exactly how to address that Example, And I had some discussion later on uh, on a private forum, uh, Harry Benzweiner's forum, HBL, mm-hmm. where we discussed that particular example. And uh, I don't know if I can remember off the top of my head exactly what my conclusion was, but I had, I worked through it later more to get more clear on what to say, uh, if that sort of example comes up again. But yeah, there are often examples where I'm not sure what to say when I'm just thinking on the fly. And I think that was one where I didn't have a really good answer worked out in advance. And I had to do some thinking later so that if it comes up in future debates, then maybe I'll have a better answer at the ready. And I guess the fact that I can't recall exactly what my reasoning was on Harry Binswanger's forum means that I haven't really automatized that conclusion. Even if I figured it out, it's not, you know, at the ready. So I can just immediately reproduce that. And that's the case with a lot of things that happen in debates. Like every debate is a learning experience. I'm always finding out like, what are my weak points? What do I need to learn more about in order to do better in future debates? And that's, that's one of the things I like about debates. It helps me figure out, you know, how can I improve on my understanding? So there's, there's always um, like history. That's another thing. Like sometimes people will talk about the history of capitalism and what about, you know, the 19th century, the uh, they'll cite something which I might have a little bit of knowledge on, but not that much. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just know that, OK, this is something that um, if I have time, I'll, I'll want to brush up on. I mean, there's always limited time. You can spend your entire life preparing for these, these debates, but there's a balance between, you know, how much time you spend preparing versus just going out there and actually talking to people and having conversations. And different people might strike that balance differently. And I don't know that I always strike it in the optimal way, but. Um,
1: well, if you want to build the channel yeah. with through debates, I would definitely like, you know, get well-versed in the 19th century or, I don't know, a big pharma. Um, but, I, you know, since we have the principles, you know, of, of what's going to lead to that innovation, you could still kind of uh, address those counterpoints that you get about the 19th century um, but so you didn't remember Harry's answer about the antibiotic question
0: well, I think I actually proposed I think there were a number of people who were participating in this thread on HBL, and I had um, proposed one answer um, I could I mean if you want to wait, I could pull it up and just like read what I wrote but um, and I, I remember Harry agreed basically with what I had come up with. Um, so, to take yeah, the, I,
1: I, to take the penicillin, or
0: uh, let me, let me see if I can um, recall what I said. So I think maybe it was that if you, if you, it's not actually in your self-interest to take a bunch of antibiotics if the result of that is creating many antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria which can then let's say go around and kill all your family (laughs) or your friends Mm -hmm. so um is it really in your interest to um to take all these antibiotics if it's the result is going to be very deadly Uh, bacteria that kill all the people around you. I think that might've been at least part of my answer as to why it's not in your rational long-term self-interest to just load up on antibiotics. So it actually, there is some kind of harmony between what's good for you as an individual and what's good for society. Mm -hmm. There might've been more to it, but I think that was at least part of the answer I came up with.
1: Okay, um Let's see, so you said you're not from uh, Southern California originally? You moved, are you from the East Coast, or
0: yeah, from Virginia.
1: Oh, Virginia. okay. okay. I know yeah, there's a lot of objectivists from Virginia, actually like Harry and Craig and so I think there's a few more who I uh, grew up in in Richmond. Um,
0: yeah, I was from Northern Virginia, pretty close to washington, d c. So I could drive to Washington D.C. in like twenty minutes from where I grew up. So I was in Fairfax County, um, and Harry was from Richmond. Uh, yeah, so I I, uh, I guess I met, I met some Objectivists from uh, Virginia, but I I was already at the unit or almost about to start at the University of Virginia when I first read Ayn Rand in ninety seven. Uh, so, um, I guess some of the objectivists I first met were in central Virginia in connection with the objectivist club that I started, hmm. but then also later I, I met some back in Northern Virginia. Um, but I, I just wasn't as, uh, I guess the internet was in a relatively young phase at that point. So I probably could have met more if it were, like, there wasn't uh, Facebook at that time. I probably could have met more people through social media um, uh, back then if we had something like Facebook. But, yeah, I, I met some people there. Not Harry. He was, uh, he was long gone from Virginia by, by that point. And, you know, he's, he's of a different generation. Right, so But I was right. in email contact with him from pretty okay. early on, Do you which was nice.
1: you go to Ocon typically or?
0: Uh yeah, typically I do. I, uh, f- for a number of years, I would just go to it when it was on the West coast. So they would alternate between East coast and West coast. Mm-hmm. And whenever it was on the West coast, I would go to it. Uh, but th- for the last several years, I've gone to it wherever it's been. So like last year, last uh, one was in Washington, DC just earlier this summer. I went to that. Um, but yeah, I'm typically there.
1: Okay. So do they know about your channel like your own and and uh, Ankar? I don't know if they're familiar they know you told you told them you started a channel or
0: I I I think I've at least told them I've started I think they know I have a channel. I haven't talked about it much with them, but I think they know of its existence at least. Right? Yeah, but I don't I don't know if they've they've watched any of my my videos. I know some other people at ARI I have uh, I who I've discussed a little more uh, my channel with, and I've gotten some feedback. Um, so I know some some people there have had, so there's a various level of engagement, I guess, uh, with different people at ARI and my channel.
1: Okay, and so do you think the best way to spread these ideas um, is through debate and using the YouTube platform? I guess given the scope of your capacity with you know resources given here
0: for me i i think it's a good method and i also enjoy it so i I don't i don't think it's going to be the same for everybody some people i think are less interested in debates they're more interested in um like lectures uh where you just have one person there laying out some some view or like there's the, the New Ideal podcast that ARI, the Ayn Rand Institute does, right. where it's just people from ARI who are commenting on some event in the culture, perhaps, or doing a Q&A sort of session. So I think there are many different formats uh, that activism can take and that there's value in. And I do a mix myself on my channel. It's not just debates. I've done a lot of debates, but I also have videos which are more um, just like friendly conversations. Actually, when I started my channel, I focused on the topic of selfishness and I began what I called the selfishness project where I would uh, go around um, my university campus or the uh, nearby university town that I was living in at the time and just stop random people and say, hey, you want to have a discussion? Um, oh, wow. And then we, we would talk about selfishness. And um, so that was a different style of video than I've been doing recently. But um, these were just random people I was having conversations with. But I started to realize, you know, if I want to grow my channel, then it could help to get on platforms of other YouTubers who already have big audience. Mm-hmm. Audiences built up. They're not just random people. So I started trying to contact other YouTubers so I could get in front of their audience. And, um, like Sam Cedar, he has over a million subscribers. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I picked up a lot of subscribers to my own channel after I went on his channel, because a lot of people, they, they just didn't know about me, I think, but then they, they heard me on, on his show. And then they, I guess some of them were interested and uh, clicked over to my channel and decided to subscribe, So I I found that debates is a good way to um, spread awareness of me and my ideas and Ayn Rand's ideas, whereas just talking to random people who who don't have any kind of audience built up, I mean, it can be valuable, um, but it doesn't have as big a reach as doing some of these debates uh, that I've done. So that's one of the reasons that I've been doing these debates.
1: And you think, have you changed anyone's mind? Have you gotten like private messages like, you know, I was, I don't know, a lefty or a religious conservative and like, you know what, this is really persuasive. I'm going to go read Ayn Rand now. And, uh, you know, I've certainly, I don't know if I've converted anyone to objectivism, but I've gotten people to take Ayn Rand seriously and to see that there's something substantial there in these ideas, um, that there shouldn't just be dismissed. Um, And for me, that's a small victory.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know <clears throat> if anyone has been converted by any of my debates. Uh, I do sometimes see encouraging feedback, like in comments under videos. Um, so there's, but there's always going to be, a, I think, a silent majority for any debate. Like, so any debate is going to have, um, like the last one I did, it's got, I think, uh, six or 7,000 views now on YouTube, but, and it's got like around 700 comments, but but I think there are a lot more people than that who are just watching the debates, um, who, who are not, who are not commenting. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know. So I think a lot of what happens, you just never, find out and maybe you know i'll get an email down the road somewhere that says hey i I saw you doing this debate and something you said sounded interesting and then maybe decide to go check out ayn rand and you know this whole process could take you know years to unfold and i am at the relatively early stage of it so i haven't seen a lot of um direct uh like straightforward comments like you've changed my mind or you got me in into ayn rand but um i think I, i've been planting lots of seeds right um and maybe some I'll, I'll see some of those sprout uh in the future
1: yeah change it's never like you give the correct answer or a logical argument and people go from zero to one it's very subtle in incremental ways. You know, maybe I know people who love the Fountainhead, but they still voted for I mean, uh, leftist candidates. Because, but in their career, I think it affects people's career more than their politics initially. Like, they, you know, in terms of the integrity they have at work and their willingness to take risk. Um, at least that's the feedback I've gotten from people who, who take something from Rand, but just not, not in a political sense. Uh, would you ever consider going like uh, on college campuses, like doing like a Socrates style, you know, like you have a booth, like, oh, Ayn Rand was, you know, like uh, Stephen Crowder's changed my mind. You know, he has a little booth. Uh, and if you just said Ayn Rand was right, or I don't know, taxation is theft or selfishness is a virtue. And then just recorded that and and put that on your YouTube channel, like uh, UC or I don't know what's in, in Orange County, but there should be, a, you know, some good universities there. What?
0: i i i mean no i i haven't done exactly that i mean like as i mentioned before I, i've gone around my college campus or a nearby town and i've talked to people but i haven't like set up a booth in the way that crowder does and yeah up a, sign.
1: a great idea i would do it i'd fly out if i you know i have some family in california i'd fly out me, me and you could sit at a booth and just be <sighs> selfishness this is right let's let's you know change my mind <laughs> yeah
0: you know? yeah that's an interesting idea uh, maybe i should give that a try I, I don't know if I have to get permission from the university to set up a booth like that, or if maybe there's just some nearby public place. I could go to do that, which would be uh, about as good, but that's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I will try that sometime.
1: Oh, I think that'd be fantastic. Um, and let's see, do your, your family, are they traditionally kind of conservative Virginians? Or are they a little shocked by your views or,
0: Uh, let's see. No, I wouldn't say they're conservative Virginians. Uh, I, I don't know if they want me to say anything about their views, but, um, uh, I guess my, I, I, politics wasn't really a subject I discussed or thought about much growing up. So it's, it's only since I've left the nest, so to speak of, of home, that I've even become aware of what some of my other family members' ideas are um, so I guess I can just say maybe I can edit this out later if I decided I should, but uh I, they I, they're left leaning um mm-hmm. like I think my uh my brother is um I asked him once like is there a political figure that you know, you find appealing. He he said something like Elizabeth Warren would be, um, and he he did say he's got his own disagreements with her, but if you had to just pick someone who's well-known to just get a general sense of what his view was, that was the one name he threw out. So, Uh, And then my my dad, uh, he's um, also left, Uh, I don't know if he would say Elizabeth Warren, I think maybe not quite as far left as that but um, definitely not right, because I've seen quite a few Facebook posts from him. Uh, At least if right means like Trump, if that's Mm -hmm. what we're taking right to mean. And I'm I'm not, I I don't like Trump myself, but Mm -hmm. um, I I do think my dad leans left overall. Um, My mother passed away many years ago um, before I was even really politically aware. So I I don't know what her view was. So it's just my dad and my brother, um, but I have to go on. And that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's what I'll say about their views.
1: Okay, so how do you see the the GOP today? Are you kind of optimistic about Rand's influence on the party? um, Or do you think it's heading in kind of a religious, nationalist, collectivist direction, authoritarian direction, like the Dim Hypothesis? has predicted
0: okay so the gop today uh, for anyone who doesn't know that last reference the dim hypothesis that's leonard Peikoff's. uh, he has a book called the dim hypothesis leonard Peikoff, being the um uh, uh ayn rand's uh best most famous students her her heir in some ways i think he he called himself her intellectual error for at least a while and he wrote a book called the dim hypothesis where dim stands for disintegration integration and misintegration that's the acronym and uh there's a whole theory there which i i don't know if i should take a, the time to uh get into that but um but the gop oh also i should say um I don't follow politics very closely myself, uh, so I'm not like reading the newspaper every day or news articles every day. A lot of the news I get is what I hear through the Iran Brooks show. Mm-hmm. I do listen to the Iran show uh, a fair amounts, and sometimes I see things on um, I see things on Facebook just scrolling through now and then. But I don't keep very close tabs on it, so um, I I don't know that uh, how much I have to say about the GOP. But generally, uh, I, I think there are, there are serious problems both on the left and the right. If by right we mean like the Trumpist sort of uh, faction in politics. Now, the term right itself, I think. Ayn Rand, you know, many decades ago, I think she might have uh, implied that her, her view is more right. So if by right, you mean capitalism, Leslie, for capitalism, then yeah, um, I think that's good. But today, the word right in so many people's minds, I think it's come to mean like the, the Republicans and the GOP, and Trump, which is definitely not capitalism. So I think it's, it's important to make that distinction. So uh, we're not so objectivism is not associated with the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think both the right, as it's commonly understood in the culture today and the left are seriously flawed. And, you know, you can debate, you know, is one worse than the other, but I think it might be a lesser of two evils kind of debate. I think the most important thing to get is that both have are seriously fundamentally flawed parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I guess I don't really see the maybe there are some isolated issues which it makes sense to ally to be allies with uh with the with the republicans on certain issues uh, or with the democrats too maybe um on certain select isolated issues but in general I don't really see either side as being allies uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll pause there, throw it back to
1: you. Uh, was your own, do you think your biggest influence to uh, either start your channel or just in general to um, be enthusiastic about objectivism?
0: Uh, no, I wouldn't say, I, I was already very interested in um, objectivism long before, uh, I knew about Euron Brook. I mean, 97 is when I first got into objectivism. He, he became the CEO of ARI 2000. in 2000, I believe. Yeah. So I, I had already been, um, gung-ho about objectivism for a few years. Um, and I, I started my channel, um, I guess it was a few, he started, I think he started maybe in 2015, his YouTube channel. Um, So he wasn't really an influence on me in terms of like getting interested in objectivism. But I guess his, the major role he plays for me now is just, I I listen to his show a lot and I get uh, his take, um, an objectivist take on what's going on in the world. And I think his show is great for that. It keeps me informed and it's um it's influential on how i also process what's going on in the world today so so th- that's the big value i get from him now
1: excellent yeah me too he really um he's just because he's such a generalist and that's you know he's uh, he can think off a script where i think many intellectuals they have a certain script they go off of if you you ask them a question about something that isn't their specialty they don't You know, they don't think on the fly, and um, you know, your own is just a very likable guy, down to earth guy, um, and knowledgeable in so many different fields. That uh, you know, and and he's, he's just a workhorse. I mean, he's you know, doing four shows a week, he's flying, he's in where is he in Brazil now, or maybe he's coming back to Puerto Rico. Um, so yeah, that's huge. Um, so let's see,
0: he's been uh, he's become quite well known. Uh, I mean, his YouTube channel—he's got over like thirty-three thousand subscribers or something now. Thirty-four, yeah. So Thirty-four, yeah. And I mean, a lot of people know about him in in the debate world. Like uh, some of these people I've been debating, like Econo Boy, have also debated with Uran. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's—I might have found out about some of the people I've debated through them having had debates with Uran, like Ben Burgess. He was another mm-hmm. one who debated Iran. Sam Cedar. Possibly. Did you debate I, Ben Burgess? Yeah, yeah, I debated oh, yeah. him.
1: Yeah. That was recent.
0: That was, uh, I think, a lot February of this year. So um, it's been several months now. But I debated him on uh, modern day debate. That's kind of a third party debate platform, uh, and that's yeah, that's where I debated Ben Burgess. But yeah, there's some overlap. Uh, between the people I've debated and the people Iran has debated, but a lot of these these people I've debated, they know about Iran. Like they, no. he's he's um, become quite well known. Maybe maybe the best well known um, person Correct. in the Objectivist movements uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, yeah, it's it's been good to to see his channel grow. Hope it I grows have, uh, much more.
1: Yeah, Ben, he's very frightened by Objectivist ideas or libertarian ideas like he he's if you listen to him on his own when he talks to his own crew of lefties he's like he's nervous he sees the growth in it and he sees it as a threat that's going to unwind i think uh the leftist intellectual establishment um in general though i don't think most lefties are afraid of ayn rand yet um i think they know on some level she's a nuisance but they don't see her as someone who's going to completely overthrow their monopoly on intellectual thought and activity. Um, but I think that'll change the next 10 to 20 years as, as guys like you and, and uh, Iron Rain UK and, and other channels start to emerge that, um, you, know, are, are, you know, if we had another dozen guys like you, I think that would make a huge change in the culture. Uh, now, like Alex Epstein, you know, he's he's done extremely well, but he doesn't really mention Ayn Rand or objectivism. So, you know, I maybe that is why he's done so well. I don't know. I wish, you know, a guy like him would make it more clear that he derives his method of thinking from objectivism. So just maybe some of your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, Alex, he's done, uh, I think he's done a lot of great work. And as I mentioned before, he's been an inspiration to me as uh, someone who's um, succeeded uh, financially at making a living outside of academia as an intellectual. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is that difference of he's not directly, explicitly focused on promoting objectivism And, uh, I am, and that's just what interests me the most. So, uh, he, I mean, you know, we, we need to be egoists. So if, if his, what he's most passionate about is, uh, defending, uh, uh, fossil fuels or, you know, um, talking about the energy industry, then I think that's, it makes sense for him to focus on that. That's what, that's what drives him. And that's what he's most passionate about. Um, it, it just so happens in my case, I have a different kind of focus that I'm most passionate about now, I'm not making nearly as much money as he is. Um, so <laughs> maybe be, that's, you yeah. know, that's, uh, one factor, uh, that, um, I, I don't know how that factors in for him. Um, maybe it's different. I, I'm, uh, but I think I would rather make less money and, and focus on objectivism explicitly, then make more money focused on something else that I'm just not as passionate about. And I do hope to make more money eventually so focused on objectivism. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to take a while.
1: <laughs> yeah, give it three uh, I to say. five years. Like like even my own business, you know, it's like three to five years to really get that exponential growth factor. Um, yeah, because you know, making a living on YouTube is an incredible, what a satisfying uh quality revenue stream you know um because our current mixed economy jobs aren't the best i don't know like uh i because i think if we had laissez-faire capitalism we wouldn't have these 40-hour work weeks and and office politics i think those are products of statism i think we would have most of us probably work from home 10 hours a week doing things like podcasting
0: or yeah it's it's i mean it's hard you can't really imagine what it would be like it would just be so radically different i mean we could have flying cars by now oh 100%. maybe we could be on mars we could be in other galaxies uh, oh yeah
1: i i yeah we we couldn't even imagine um the, I, harry talked about harry Binswinger on uh his recent q a someone asked him about will automation remove all employment he doesn't think so i guess most your own agrees but i think um I think eventually, you know, a thousand years of laissez-faire capitalism, 10,000 years. We, machines could fix machines, even if they break down. I don't mm-hmm. know if unemployment would be absolutely essential.
0: Well, it, it, maybe it depends on how un, how employment is understood. So if, if uh, in a very broad sense, if it just means productivity, then... I think there's a good argument to be made that that's never going to go away. Like whatever state you're at, you can always do better. You can always improve things, and you can always use your minds to uh, make things better. So if if simply using your mind to make things better is productivity, and if that's another way of saying you're employed, you're employing your your rational faculty to um, make your existence better, then in that very broad sense, I don't think employments will ever go away, but the, the, the form that employment takes, I think, could radically change.
1: But couldn't, I don't know, in terms of food, shelter, transportation, I don't know, let's say machines produce these things, um, you know, we didn't, I mean, employment, what would we even need to do? I mean, maybe there'd be some psychological things we could do, but in terms of raw basics, I think machines would produce most of those values. Um, and then I guess how would private property and, and wealth distribution work under that system? I mean, this is probably a few thousand years from now, but I just wonder how objectivism would would hold with rapid technological uh, growth if it would have to be tweaked or something. And um, do you have any disagreements with the objectivist philosophy?
0: I don't know. I've, uh, over the last several months or so, I've been wondering if I have some different uh, disagreements or in the area of meta ethics. So like the issues, like the, um, the ultimate value, like is, is the ultimate value life or is it happiness? Is it both? Are they just different? ways of looking at the same sort of thing um i've had discussions about these sorts of topics with other objectivists and um the discussions have made me at least question whether i have a different view than rand on some of these meta-ethical issues so i'm not sure i, I think uh, hedonism is a topic i've been thinking about over the last several months or year like if you understand hedonism in a certain way, could it be compatible with objectivism? Like if hedonism just means do whatever you feel like in the moment, it's clearly not compatible with objectivism. That would be like whim worship. Mm-hmm. But, but if hedonism just means pleasure is the highest value and happiness is a form of pleasure, well, is that very different than what Rand says? I mean, she says happiness is the moral purpose properly, it's the moral purpose of one's life. Well, if hedonism is just making a claim about what the ultimate value is or the highest value, well, I don't, I don't think that's too far afield from what Rand is saying when she says, happiness is the, <laughs> is the highest yeah. purpose. So it depends on how exactly you understand hedonism. Uh, I, I read a dissertation by someone uh, several months ago, who's, who's argued, actually, that um, I think his argument is that Rand's view is consistent with hedonism, or at least hedonism, if you understand it in, in a certain way, is consistent with Ayn Rand's view. If you understand it in a very narrow way, as I mentioned, like it's just whim worship, do whatever you want in the moment, then it's, it's obviously not compatible. But I think even like Epicurus, an ancient Greek philosopher who's commonly associated with hedonism... Even he thought that was not a, a correct approach. It was kind of a straw man, I think, of his view. So there are some of these th- these sorts of issues which I'm not sure I have the same view as Rand, but maybe I do. You know, maybe if I had a three-hour conversation with her and tried to ha- hash all this out, right? Sure. Maybe she'd say, "Okay, yeah, maybe if you interpret it that way, then I could get on board with that." I don't know. Um, what is so
1: the Pleasure and happiness are just not the same thing, is what she's emphasizing, and, and happiness is really a long-range prospect. Um, but not to say that pleasure, range of the moment, pleasure is always wrong. Like you know, I like getting a cheeseburger, you know, once in a while. Um, so I think as as long as it's consistent with your long-range well-being and flourishing. Um, yeah
0: there are different senses of pleasure. So there is the kind of immediate sensory pleasure, but there's also what you might call intellectual or emotional pleasures like joy or happiness. So, Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so these terms are, are um, they can, uh, they have different senses and I think it's, it's important to be clear on exactly what you mean by a certain term. So if you mean, certain thing by pleasure it's clearly not uh compatible fran's view that pleasure is the highest good but if you mean something else by pleasure uh maybe something more like uh happiness or uh flourishing or well-being Mm -hmm. then maybe that is compatible so i i don't think there's like a a one-line answer that can decide the issue some of these issues you just have to have discussions with people and figure out exactly what they mean by terms what senses they're they're using the terms to figure out what exactly the claim is that's being made whether it's consistent with objectivism whether it's rights um, so but th- th- there is a another issue though which i've um i've uh, written some about uh on my Selfishness Project website and also on Harry Binswanger's forum, which is the dictionary definition of selfishness. I don't know if you're aware of any of that, but in um, the introduction to the virtue of selfishness, Ayn Rand says that, quote, the exact meaning and dictionary definition of selfishness is concern with one's own interests, unquote or at least something very close to that. Um, so uh, many people have have uh, noticed, well, if you actually look in a dictionary, what you find is typically not what she, she says there. So concern with one's own interests, that's usually not what you find in a dictionary, yet she says that's the dictionary definition of selfishness. What you usually find is something like concern with one's own interests at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. So um that might be a point where i have a disagreement like was she actually right about what the dictionary definition of selfishness is i'm not sure that she was at least i have some doubts now some people have tried to interpret that statement to mean oh she wasn't saying this is what the dictionary definition is it's what rather she's saying this is what the dictionary definition should be what she means is this is the proper dictionary definition and I'm not sure that's the right interpretation of what she says, but some people have put that forward as a way to um, address this criticism that she's falsely claiming that the dictionary definition is concerned with one's own interest.
1: I guess which de- the dictionary, maybe in the fifties or forties when she mm-hmm. cracked one open, then today the altruists corrupted it or
0: something. Um, I've looked into that. I've looked into dictionaries going back hundreds of years they're all basically um not all of them there are some that are I think pretty much uh, what she says, but it's a small minority. I think the large majority uh going back for centuries, uh, I've looked in Samuel Johnson's dictionary, I think of this seventeen hundreds um Going back that far, it, it's got the, uh, the the package deal sort of definition, as it's often called, where it packages in concern with your own interest with mm-hmm. harm to others. Um, so, yeah, it's not just a recent pheno- phenomenon. I've even looked in the dictionaries that we know Ayn Rand herself made use of, mm-hmm. because sometimes she references in an article, she's giving the dictionary definition of some term. And um, she'll say like, this was the American Heritage Dictionary of 1968 or or whatever, or the Random House Dictionary of 1968. Well, I've looked at, I've tracked down as many of these particular dictionaries that she cites as I could. I think there are like about five of them. And even in those uh, dictionaries, they have the package deal sort of definition of selfishness. The closest one I've found, to hers is it's different by only one word, but I think it's an important word, which is, quote, concern only with one's own interests, unquote. Mm -hmm. So that word only, I think, is important because I think the way that's most reasonably interpreted is that you don't care about others' interests at all. You're just a jerk to others. You're rude to others. You Mm -hmm. only care about your own interests um now there's a way of interpreting that only such that it is compatible with her view like if you take it to mean like primarily or fundamentally uh concerned with your own interests yeah i think you could say that is her view but i don't think that's how uh, lexicographers probably intend it i mean they're trying to reflect common usage i think Mm -hmm. that's what a dictionary is trying to do it's trying to capture how this word is typically used i mean that's that's the value of a dictionary. If you want to know what you hear some new word and you're not sure what it means, you look up in a dictionary to see what someone probably meant by it. And I think what most, pro, most people probably meant by it and what the dictionary is trying to capture when they say concern only with your own interests is that you're not, you don't care about others and you're kind of rude or a jerk. You're doing things at their expense. I think that's the best interpretation of this concern only with one's own interests, sort of definition.
1: Psychopathy, like with you debated, I think it was an English guy or Welsh or something. You guys kind of got hampered on the idea of psychopathy or or criminal. And the only reason uh, you would feel guilty for, I guess, killing someone for money or stealing is because you were socialized well as a kid as though like we're animals we have to be socialized to behave it's like we don't have free will or reason and we can't i guess introspect that uh you know it, it's taking us kind of out of harmony with reality to uh commit crime
0: right yeah so that that, that bridges to a somewhat different topic so just to kind of tie up that last thread so sure. you you asked about like do i have any differences or disagreements with ayn rand so um <clears throat> There's the meta-ethical issues, which I'm not sure I disagree on. I just have questions about. and then But there's also this issue of the dictionary definitions of selfishness. I think I, there's a good chance I have a disagreement on her over what the dictionary definition of it is. But there's still questions of interpretation. You know, what exactly was she saying or what did she mean by saying this is the dictionary definition But I think there's a good chance, at least, um, that I ha- have a disagreement there. Uh, but now going to the, what you were just mentioning, so you, you were referring to my debate with perspective philosophy, that's the guy's yes. name, and uh, yeah, so he was saying, Well, um, you were raised in a certain way, so you might not, you know, find your self interest in like murdering, robbing, raping other people, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, other people maybe they would. And and, uh, I I do think you you had mentioned introspection. I think that is one of the methods by which you need to figure out, like, if you just go by, you know, whether you get caught by Mm -hmm. the police for doing something, I don't think that's enough because you can get away with doing things get away with in the sense, not thrown. In, you're not thrown into jail. So you can, you might get away with stealing a pack of gum. Maybe nobody catches you at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't end up in jail, but to really see what's that, what's wrong with doing that. I think you do need to introspect and realize, okay, existentially. Yeah. I didn't get thrown in jail, but how do I feel about this? Like, do I respect myself? What is my attitude towards other people? Am I treating people with dignity? Do I have any rights to ask anyone to treat me with dignity if I'm treating other people this way. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to do this kind of reflection and introspection to, to understand why s- certain actions are in your interest or not in your self-interest. So that led to a discussion of introspection and whether that's reliable, you know, that itself is, is an issue unto itself. The reliability of introspection. I think psychologists you know they don't don't think it is they 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 want to downplay the importance of introspection and be more quote scientific um that's ridiculous it's just it
1: just denies all free will or observation logic you know which is it's just like sense perception i I view introspection is pretty much on the level of sense perception well maybe that's a bit of an overstatement but close
0: yeah, there's a kind of, um, it's, it's analogous to sense perception and that you, you're directly given some data, like with your senses, you just open your eyes and, you know, something strikes you, you know, this looks beige looking at this thing over here, or this, this fence looks white, this plant looks green, you know, it just strikes you. And likewise, when you introspect, you can just see, you know, I'm, I'm feeling happy right now or joyful, mm-hmm. or I'm feeling depressed. There's just this immediately given data, um, which you don't have to infer, like reason your way to, it's just given to you directly. And uh, I think it's, um, so there is that similarity between perception and introspection. Yes. Um, Um, And you can make mistakes about like more involved things like, you know, why do I, you might, it might be easy to say, well, I feel good about this. But the hard part where you can start to make mistakes is, now why do I feel good about this? Introspecting your reasons. So I tried to give that example in that chat with perspective philosophy, like you might feel positively to a certain person, but you might think your knee jerk reaction is, Oh, it's because the person embodies the trait of honesty. And I like honesty, but really it's something else because you notice you feel different towards, towards someone else who's also honest um, so, using Mill's methods to d- differentiate, you realize, oh, maybe there's something else going on. So, but that gets into a more inferential sort of um, mode. It's not purely cool. just like yeah. observing your your state inside.
1: Yeah, con- yeah, concepts are the realm of fallibility, but just that, I don't know, the signal you get can't be wrong. Um, but oh, I guess well, okay. Let's say I think he pushed back about like if you're really psychopathic or. Uh, I hate the term antisocial, I think it's a package deal, because, you know, if you don't want to socialize, therefore you're a criminal, or you may just be more kind of a loner. Um, But he would say, if you're really like Jeffrey Dahmer or something, you won't have that introspective signal, right? That what you did is evil and unjust and, and monstrous. And I don't know if that's true. I think maybe they just repressed that signal. Maybe they've been very good at evading and repression.
0: I don't know either. I, I mean, I am i would at least entertain the possibility that there are some people who just... There's something wired uh, abnormally in their brain, and so they don't have the normal sort of human emotions that most people do. But maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that really... Has uh, much many implications for how for ethics for, for how we should uh, behave, how people in general should behave. So, even if we grant, for the sake of arguments, that there are some strange cases um, where people don't have the normal range of emotions for the uh, normal reasons, I don't think that implies for the vast majority of human beings that therefore they should go around murdering and robbing and raping just because there are these freak cases. No, that doesn't follow.
1: That's a good point. Um, So do you think, just based on kind of what you were saying about uh, dictionary definitions, do you think self-interest is a better term than selfishness? Or do we really just selfishness, even if the dictionary, I don't know, doesn't help our case as much today? uh, Should we just be like, nope, we're selfish, egoistic, or just like, no, we're rationally self-interested. We're not, into, I don't know, narcissistic or,
0: uh, exploitative. So here's a case where I kind of, uh, echoing a point I made earlier where I, I don't really think there's like a magic word or sentence. So no matter what word you use, you're going to have, it's, it's gotta be a discussion. So it might make more sense in certain contexts to not use the word selfish because that's not going to at- antagonize people right off the bat mm-hmm. um i mean it, it it might antagonize people immediately if you use the word selfish or as it wouldn't if you use something like self-interest um but even self-interest you know p- it might not immediately, uh, make someone antagonistic, but you know, you get a few sentences or paragraphs into explaining what it is and maybe they start to become antagonistic, even to self-interest. They might say, Oh, well, it sounds like what you mean by that is just like what people mean by selfish. Um, so it might take a little longer to get there. Um, but I think the more important thing to recognize is just like, there's some, there's deep, uh, uh, Premises that have to be uprooted, like that it's good to self-sacrifice or it's bad to do something for yourself and different words you use might make it take uh, more or less time to get there, but you've got to have a conversation and explore those deep issues, like whether it's good to live for yourself or good to live for other people, um, or should you want to have a balance of those two, it's got to be a whole conversation And, you know, I I think you could, uh, you can uh, debate or haggle over what is the best word to use in a given context. But I guess I'm, I'm more interested in having that larger conversation, which, um, so I think the important issues here, they can't be resolved by a word choice or or a sentence choice. There's a whole issue, a network of issues that has to be explored. Mm. So,
1: well, I like what your own study said. said. Look, we do have the silver bullet. It's just going at two miles per hour in terms of uh, changing the culture, even if we're kind of having disputes over certain words. But we have the, the general orientation that's going to lead to victory is we've got it. it. just It's just very slow and incremental. And I think a lot of objectivists are impulsive, like I was. I thought, okay, we're right. This is clearly obvious. Why are we not winning? Um, but maybe we are winning. You know, I think it's just, again, at two miles an hour, we're winning. (laughs) Like, we can't be stopped. You know, the question is, will the culture completely disintegrate before the right ideas become dominant? And uh, I'm starting to think they may, we may not collapse. Like, these mixed economy structures seem to be able to take a lot of abuse, like we see with COVID and and inflation. Um, They don't just unwind. Like they did in Nazi Germany or in the in the Weimar Republic, uh, this I think maybe technology is giving us more lasting power. Um, so it it very well could be we'll just kind of sputter and stagnate a bit until objectivism uh, becomes a real force in in political culture.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to know like pre- predicting like cultural wide uh, predictions and. It's, it's hard, like in, in the time scale, like, are we winning at two miles an hour? <laughs> um, like, it, it's, it's hard to gauge those things. So, um, yeah, how do you measure some of these things? I, I don't spend a, a lot of time thinking about that. Like, are we winning? Like, I guess I, I guess I focus more narrowly in my own life by looking at something like uh subscribers to my youtube channel it's it's something that like numerical i can actually um, mm-hmm. measure that in some way and i see yeah it's, it's been growing and when i go have a debate with somebody i, I get a surge in subscribers sometimes so i can see yeah i'm I, i'm i'm making some kind of progress here i'm getting more views um so that's that's relatively objective. Like it's not, I've actually got some kind of numbers that I can use to, to, to see if, if, I'm making, um, uh, more of a dent in the universe. Um, but something like, are we winning in the culture? I mean, w- one thought I had on that actually is, um, I think Ayn Rand is mentioned more than like a few decades ago where you know if she's mentioned on some mainstream outlets it's like wow that's it's it's a very rare thing but i think it's becoming less rare these days she's becoming if not a household name at least closer to that mm-hmm. so i think that's a sign of of progress so there's there's different steps here there's awareness of rand then there's understanding of rand and then there's agreement with Rand. Right. And on the awareness front, at least, I think there has been significant progress. I think over the few decades of my life, it seems like there's been more mentions of her in the culture, in news articles, um, and so forth. So uh, that doesn't necessarily mean understanding or agreement, but, you know, awareness is the first step in that process so i think there has been some kind of progress but you know measuring it very precisely that's difficult to do you know right. is there 50% more awareness than there was 2 decades ago uh 100% more i i don't know
1: i mean you can look at certain entrepreneurs who when people ask you know where's your spiritual fuel come from like steve jobs said you know reading atlas shrugged gave him the fuel to start apple um and other entrepreneurs like Uber, the uh, the CEO of Uber said Atlas shrug really changed his life. So I think we're going to see it in the in the entrepreneurial sphere before p- politics and academia. I think academia may be hopeless. Um, I do. I mean, I know that's kind of Ari's um, you know main focus is getting training new academics um but it you know it could be the case that the internet will will break the university stranglehold on the intellect like we may not even need <laughs> academic institutions um but maybe they just have more credibility than than youtube podcasts and discords and things like that um but yeah I just there's just so much pushback in academia whereas you don't get that in in other circles and people looking for self-help, just regular people really take to, to objectivism.
0: There is a lot of pushback in academia, but I think even there it's it become less so over the decades. So, you know, if you take a long run view of it, um, I think there has been progress. I mean, there, there been, like Tara Smith, for example, she's Published a book that's come out with uh, Cambridge University Press on Ayn Rand's normative ethics. Oh, was that written <clears throat>
1: quite recently? Uh,
0: this was uh, 2006, I believe it came out. But th- there's also been other academic publishers. Uh, University of Pittsburgh Press came out with a series of books. There might even be more coming out on uh, based on the Ayn Rand Society uh, meetings. So, in that itself, is a um, a uh, sign of Ayn Rand's uh, at least small penetration into the academic world. So there's, there's the American philosophical association, the APA, and then associated with that, there is what's called the Ayn Rand society um, where, you know, professionals uh, every year, uh, or at least most years, they have some kind of uh, conference and they give academic talks about Ayn Rand's philosophy. Um, and there have been uh, academics who uh, have debated with objectivist academics. So like Tara Smith, her book, there was a symposium around her her book when it came out in 2006. <clears throat> um, so it's, I think it's still quite minor overall, the interest in ran in academia, but I do think there it's been growing. But, but also... I, I do think that there might be uh, academia might change radically, uh, partly due to, as you mentioned, the internet. Um, there's just there's a ton of free and high quality uh, content on a platform like YouTube. Like you'll there there's series like Yale Yale lectures or. Um, I don't know. MIT might come out with a, a course which you you can take on on YouTube for free. Um, so in, there's there's a question of how you grade people, you know, if you're gonna <clears throat> get students. But um, but I think that, that academia might change radically, and maybe it's not the the mo- the best strategy to. Um, uh, to focus on changing academia, but to do something else. I think the Ayn Rand university actually has, has recently been established, uh, as a, as a broader sort of uh, program than the objectivist academic center, which for many years was a program, the Ayn Rand Institute ran, which I participated in, hmm. but in, over the last couple of years, they've broadened it, uh, to, um, not just be training objectivist intellectuals, but I think the focus now is anyone who's had some kind of interest uh, in Ayn Rand's ideas. Maybe they've read a book by Ayn Rand and they've they've become very intrigued by it. Well, now that person uh, can take courses at the Ayn Rand University. So I think I, ARI Ha, might have uh, changed its focus somewhat recently from traditional academia to to uh, other sorts of um, ways of having an impact
1: mm-hmm. uh, yeah so you're overall optimistic you don't see us um you know collapsing into a, a civil war or an inflationary depression and uh, you know you you see a relatively stable future and and uh you know, your channel growing and objectivism
0: growing? I don't know if I would say, um, I I don't think I'm overall optimistic or pessimistic. Mm -hmm. I I just, I don't really have a view on the odds that objectivism is going to win out and that we're not going to collapse into a new dark ages I mean, I think there have been some very bad signs in the culture, like the, um, the rioting over the last few years, like the, the BLM riots on the, on the left, and then the, the uh, January 6th riots on the, the right or the mm-hmm. Trump rights. Um, I mean, in my lifetime, I, I don't think there's ever been riots like that um, at that level in, of seriousness and prolonged. Nature. I mean, there wasn't Seattle or Portland like under siege for weeks or months. And yeah. so, I think there are some very bad signs. Um, it's a very good signs too. I mean, I, I mean, I love the internet. So that's that's it's an amazing tool. It's, it's a very powerful tool. So, I don't really, I don't really have a a. Uh, a view on like, like I wouldn't say I'm optimistic or I'm pessimistic I pessimistic I just don't know. I'm just focusing on like what I can control. so I'm growing my channel I, i'm I'm pleased that I have had some some growth. I mean I'm still relatively small and, and I mean compared to many other channels <laughs> uh, I mean I, I I'm many times smaller than you're on Brooke, but I'm also many times larger than I was uh, two years ago. So, um, I am uh, but I'm focused on making my own life the best I can. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I I'm hoping that in the process of doing that, that also helps improve the culture at large Mm -hmm. as to whether, you know, it will make a significant impact or whether it will in my lifetime. I, I just don't know. I'm just doing the best I can and uh, trying not to worry too much about things I can't control or spend too much time trying to make predictions about things that are just like super complex. It's just hard to know how they're going to turn out.
1: Well, like uh, Jordan Peterson said, don't compare yourself to who someone else is today. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. You know, I thought that was one of his few more egoistic statements though. He's mostly as I listen to him, a mystical uh, Kantian. Um, so let's see, also, uh, you know, there's a good sign Trump lost, right? So certainly the riots did cease after his defeat. I mean, certainly after January 6th, um, but yeah, I like your attitude. I think sometimes we, the objectivist community, we get too depressed as we, and we don't, we're not selfish enough. We're not focusing on our own lives. Or maybe we don't have a lot going on in our own lives, so our identity comes around the objectivist movement, and really um, taking it personally when we're not getting our, our victories in the culture. Um, but yeah, I do think it is uh, inspirational that you're doing these uh, YouTube videos. I think it's going to inspire a lot more people, and your channel is only going to grow.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, it's encouraging to hear things like that. And I, I have gotten a lot of good feedback from people. Uh, it's not all been good. I have gotten some criticism, uh, much of it public. I mean, you go on any uh, any uh, video I've done. I mean, obviously, you're going to hear criticism from the other side. But I mean, even from objectivists, I've I've gotten some criticism. I guess that's usually um i don't know about usually sometimes it's more private like i might just get an email from somebody or a, a dm from somebody um sometimes it's public i've seen some some uh nasty things uh, said about me by people who are objectivists or at least call themselves objectivists yeah and um i think it's i'm not really surprised by it i mean there's lots of disagreements in the objectivist movements um over strategies. Um, uh, so I just, I, I mean, I, I take it into account and I, I consider, you know, does this person have a good arguments that I should be doing something differently or are they just hurling insults at me? I mean, if they're just hurling insults, which happens sometimes, then it just means nothing to me. I mean, that—that that, I'm, I'm totally open to constructive criticism, but if you're just hurling insults that, that accomplishes nothing and I, I i just ignore it and or and i block you <laughs> and you're 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 gone from my universe
1: yeah you have to yeah well there's a yeah, lot I... of ugliness out there there's just a lot even within so because we are still so early and a lot of people who call themselves objectivists i don't really think are i think they may have again gotten some spiritual fuel but they haven't really made it their own you know they don't live by it right it's uh you know they're not benevolent they're not being rational they're still kind of i don't know impulsive hateful um but again the culture is so nihilistic it's easy to fall into that to that bitterness and just kind of lash out and get nasty at people trying something new you know trying something
0: positive yeah it's uh yeah i don't know that i have much to say about like the the causes of that like um or or like are they really objectivists or are they are they pseudo objectivists mm-hmm. or, or um and maybe it's a mixture i mean maybe some people are objectivists but maybe they're just very young they're very new to the movement they haven't figured out like what, what should, what's a proper way to to conduct myself and i mean as i mentioned earlier like when i was very new to objectivism i was quite combative uh but you know over time i, I I decided that 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 just wasn't the most conducive to my own happiness and well-being and that I should take a different sort of approach. I I I shouldn't I I don't want to be in these very malevolent bitter mm-hmm. arguments all the time. Um that's just not a a nice mental state to be in. So, uh I've I've tried to make a point of Engaging with people in a civil sort of way, I think I've, I think a lot of people have noticed that about my conversations and debates that I, I come off as civil, mm-hmm. um, and I see that as, as self-interested. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's good for my own mental state. I think it's, I stay mentally healthier, and I, I just have more fun with it. I, I don't, I don't like being angry all the time, and getting into nasty fights. So, if someone I'm engaging with does that then then I start thinking all right well it's just time to end the conversation Mm. or and maybe block the person and I use the block button very liberally on on social media uh often it just takes you know just one comment from somebody on Facebook uh they're just they just they lead with an insult and then yeah
1: I'll
0: I'll often just say all right that was lame and then I block the person and then they're gone from my universe and I don't have to deal with it again
1: well, it's just justice. It's like, yeah, you're not, it's just disrespectful to you that they're just not even trying, they're not trying to get at the truth or how to make, I don't know, maybe help you be a better debater. They're just being nasty. So they don't deserve a response. Um. Let's see, what was I going to say? I got off tangent. Uh, but yeah, oh, it's I guess, a mixture. Oh, go ahead. What well, kind of what you were saying about when you're young and you you just discover the truth but that objectivism is true, and that you're like, whoa, this world should be this, and it's not. I, that's an injustice. So I'm going to be combative, right? That's kind of how I took it. It's like, if you if you're not agreeing with objectivism, you're dishonest. You're clearly an immoral person or a nihilistic person. You're just trying to destroy man's mind or the, or the world. And there are some people like that, but not everyone is that. And it is like being in that intense kind of malevolent state is not it's not productive but you have to learn that you get the feedback you know so when you're young you, you go everyone should go through that phase at least i'm glad they have the passion for the philosophy even if it um you know they go
0: about it in the wrong way Hmm. yeah uh i i don't i don't know if everyone goes through that phase but i think it's certainly very common i think a lot of people do go through and yeah i guess it just comes from you think like these ideas are so amazing and and also they feel like so compelling like super obvious to you like how can anyone not yeah get this all, all you have to do is expose somebody to it and they should, they should agree so if they yeah. if they don't agree you know there's something really wrong maybe dishonest yes about the person and so like i'm justified in being indignant yes and i'm not really sure what to say about it. like even if that's true, like, even if the reason for widespread resistance to objectivism upon hearing about it is like due to intellectual laziness or dishonesty, still, I don't want to get worked up about that. Like, it's just, it's, it's such a mental drain uh, Mm -hmm. on me. I I don't want that to be like dominating my my thinking all the time so just yeah so whether it's due to immorality or not um i just think one has to realize you know is focusing on that or trying to fight that is that really helping me out the most in my own life or would my mental energies best be spent doing something else? Would something else be more conducive to my happiness? Um, so I, I think it, it kind of sidesteps the issue of, you know, what is the cause of the non acceptance? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't. Interesting. Yeah, right? like, I'll just.
1: Well, there. I guess it is interesting why, you know, such a small number of people are objectivists when it is obviously correct. So, you know. I know Ankar did say like we're too, objectivists are too quick to accuse people of evasion. Like these are complex ideas, it's hard to process. I don't know if I quite agree with that. Um, I think many people are disintegrated. They don't put things, they don't identify commonalities and put them together. Uh, (laughs) I think they, they, yeah, they're very compartmentalized, but I don't know why the truth would make them uncomfortable in this case right? Because it's such a life enhancing value. Why would you want to evade that? You know, uh, unless they, I don't know what well, they want you to suffer, but it, I find it hard to believe most people are on that premise.
0: I think uh, maybe it's, in some cases, it could be due to um, social factors. So like, if you're raised religiously, and you've you built your significant part of your life around this and all your family is religious your friends are religious and then you encounter this philosophy that is radically different then now all of a sudden you've you've got to go if you're going to accept this philosophy then that's going to put you at odds potentially with all your friends and family which you you've had for years you you might think i'm going to lose all of that so there's there's a lot at stake um, if you if you get on board with this, this philosophy or maybe that uh, some social circles you travel in. So like if you're a leftist and you've been a, a left winger for years and you never heard of Ayn Rand and then all of a sudden you hear Ayn Rand's and you think like oh this kind of makes sense. There's some I, I like some stuff here, but you realize like okay if I if I go down the Ayn Rand path, well. All my leftist friends, or maybe a lot of them, I'm just going to have to break with. Um, and that might be very unsettling to many people. Maybe they just, maybe they don't have, um, maybe take some courage to, to break off on your own and realize, yeah, you're, you're going to lose, you might lose some uh, social positioning that you become comfortable with. Uh And maybe it just takes some courage to realize, okay, well, yeah, maybe I will lose that, but the truth is more important. And um, I guess if they're going to penalize me for going with what I think is true, well, then maybe they weren't the best associates to have in the first place. Um, You know, they should be encouraging me on my journey of trying to discover what's true. And if they don't, you know, do I, do I really need that person in my life? But all this thinking, you know, it takes free will. It doesn't happen automatically and some people might just choose not to do it. They might just cave into the the fear of the social repercussions uh, that would uh, occur if they uh, did accept Ayn Rand wholeheartedly or, or, or if they did even look into it. Maybe they're afraid even to look into it because they know if they do, it would be so compelling I had a guy actually, um, what was his name? Uh, One of the persons I debated, uh, last username. He said, Mm -hmm. you know, why why should, if someone knows that I'm not going to be able to steal if I read Atlas Shrugged, because it's just going to make so blazingly clear to me that this is an immoral thing to do, then maybe I'm just not going to read that book. Because, you know, if I read it, then I would have to evade it and feel guilty about evading it. So I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and never look into it. (laughs) So... Maybe there's some of that going on um, as well.
1: Well, but like academics aren't, they're not shoplifting. You know, they, um, I think they have this complexity worship. A lot of their self image is around being complex that, um, you know, reality is unknowable. It's so nuanced and, and Ayn Rand lays it out very simply and obviously clearly corresponding with reality. And it makes them uncomfortable because they've built a career out of being wrong, out of complexity worship. Um, they think to be sophisticated to be a serious thinker means you don't have answers right that uh, every you know everything is overly nuanced and subjective and then ayn rand's showing you that that is not the case um and they it just makes them very anxious and uncomfortable
0: yeah that's a common uh, criticism that's people trying to make i think it, in academia, but also outside of academia. I, I've seen it on YouTube. Um, people say, oh, well, your view is just so black and white. Reality is more complex than that. There are shades of gray, gray here. Um, so, so yeah, there is that sort of thing. I think w- w- what's, maybe what's uh, another way to look at that is that Ayn Rand thinks in essentials. So she re- reduces things down to their uh, their their essence, their, their core fundamental premises in bringing those things to light. And that, I think that's unsettling to some people because she, she makes very clear what, what the, what the core of, um, some of the views she's, she's arguing against is, um, like the the issue of force often comes up in my discussions, like on Facebook, I'll make a comment like, uh, Medicare should be abolished because it's wrong to force people or it's wrong to coerce people. Um, and, often when I bring up a term like coercion or force, it seems like the person I'm having a discussion with will try to run away, with, run away from that and um, not face it head on. It, it, it's not common that someone will say, yeah, I'm in favor of forcing people. Rather, they'll, they'll talk about, oh, I, I just I don't think it's fair that you know, some people should have more than others. Um, we're all in this together. And then I'll try to bring it back to force. Like, so you think we should coerce people? Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm saying is, you will they'll, they'll try to reformulate it in some way. So what what I think Ayn Rand is very good at is, is spotlighting the essentials. Um, and uh, I think that feeds into this sort of black and white sort of uh, charge that you sometimes hear uh, made against Rand is that she's, she's making the essentials clear and maybe they just want to dissolve into some kind of foggy um, space where they don't have to confront what they're actually saying um so yeah that's a common thing and maybe maybe there's also an element of fear there um tying back into what i was saying as to to uh, you know reasons people might not want to embrace ayn rand there's just this um and also there's the social aspect of academics uh um Like, they might feel they have to, like, they can't go. If you've been publishing papers as a professor for decades, and then you you encounter Ayn Rand, who has a radically different approach, then you might feel your career is in jeopardy if you, like, you're not going to be able to publish anymore or make a living. But I think at that stage, they might be just, like, so far steeped in an alien kind of way of thinking that it's not that they think Ayn Rand is... Right, but they're just scared to look into it. It's just that maybe their way of thinking is is so one might say warped, yeah. um, that they they just can't grasp it. Uh, they can't think in principles, think in essentials. Um,
1: Very second handed uh, primacy of consciousness, like just this Platonic forms. It all goes back to Plato, you know. Uh, everything every bad thing in history is a spinoff of plato or eastern mystics
0: well i i don't know about everything but i think um I, probably a lot i mean there's also Kant's ayn rand's uh ha, you know thought he was the most evil man in history mm-hmm. but i think you could argue he's there's he maybe he's a form some kind of form of platonism
1: Yes. So Kant is a more consistent version of Plato, and Ayn Rand is a more consistent version of Aristotle, is the way I typically formulize it. Um,
0: Yes. So I'm just thinking, like, well, how would one argue for that, that one is more, like, how how would one argue that Kant is a more consistent version of Plato? In what respect is he more consistent?
1: He's more otherworldly explicitly, like, I think Plato had some respect for logic in, uh, you know, whereas Kant thinks it's, I guess, in a way, a social construct or meaningless. Um, He's more, you know, Plato was not an altruist, right? I mean, he had a view of collective action, but it wasn't like Kant's moral imperatives of, you know, really self- abnegation um so he was more evil right like Rand didn't think plato was the most evil man it was kant and kant was obviously building off plato's irrationality and and disconnect from the real world
0: and- yeah i think there's something to that like there was i think there was more of a division between the reason and reality maybe maybe one could put it that way in, in Kant. So Plato thought there was the world of forms and then there's the world of particulars, which we know with our senses and reason can know the world of forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kant thought reason was entirely cut off from true reality. It could only know, uh, phenomenal, uh, appearances, the world of appearance, it's not the noumenal world so-called. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, Plato thought we could somehow get to the true reality, the world of forms, it might take a mystic revelation or something, Um, maybe many years of study in the cave and then learning mathematics or whatever, but we could eventually get there at least, whereas I think Kant thought, no, by the nature of consciousness we can't, we are blind because we have eyes, we are deaf because we have ears, we are deluded because we have a mind. So it's a, it's a much more, this is for anyone who doesn't know, this is Ayn Rand's formulation of the essence. Kant himself doesn't put it like that. But this is her um, formulation of what his view amounts to. Identity disqualifies consciousness um, because we know in a certain way uh, our our knowledge of reality colors and, and distorts uh, uh, what it is that we know so we can't really know it everything is seen things through a distorted lens so to mm-hmm. speak so yeah i think there is something more uh the mind is more cut off from reality and Kant's than it was for Plato
1: mm-hmm. it's more nihilistic i don't think Plato Plato was more of a power luster more authoritarian which is somewhat a cousin to nihilism but not explicit whereas Kant really wanted to undercut happiness the human soul reason he didn't want to see you succeed he was just ex- basically explicitly anti reason anti happiness more explicitly evil than uh plato um it's the difference between like maybe a mafia boss and a school shooter
0: mm. uh so and plato thought i mean you could interpret him as a i'm no plato scholar i'm not a Kant scholar either but um from from what i have learned about them plato i think one could argue is a kind of egoist in that he thought that so in the republic he argues that there are different classes of people there's the philosopher kings at the top who uh ultimately call the shots and then there's the warrior class the guardians and then there's the the um the people who are like the tradesmen the 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 people who are in the market concerned with the grubby material world um but he thought each person did best in his own role so uh if you were a grubby tradesman well, it's best, for, it's best for you to be in that role. You're just by nature, uh, that sort of being. So I guess he, he had these kind of uh, maybe deterministic views of human nature and that people are just determined to have a certain role um, that they perform better in. Like you wouldn't, as a tradesman, you're just not cut out to be a philosopher king. That wouldn't suit you the best. You, mm-hmm. Or like if you're the worker bee, you're not going to be the best in, as the queen mother, right? You're just not cut out for that by your nature. So it's, be, it's in your own interest to play the worker bee role or to play the guardian role or to play the philosopher king. So you might interpret him as a kind of egoist while at the same time, um, I think there's some, some element of collectivism, mm-hmm. but, but with, with Kant's, I, I think, uh, like there's if you're doing what's best for yourself, then there's nothing moral about that, like it's something is only moral uh if you're doing your duty because it's your duty, not because mm-hmm. it somehow benefits you, but just because you are doing your duty, you know where does this duty come from? Maybe the numeral world um but yeah, it's not that it's in your interest in that um that's why you should do it but just because it's your duty. Whereas I guess Plato would say, well, it's in your interest to play a certain role in society. So I, yeah, I do think there too, there's a more self denying sort of um, streak in, in Kant that you don't get in Plato.
1: Yes. Um, let's see. Yeah, I agree with that. Um also kind of going back to your point about thinking in essentials, I notice that you know you ever hear the term reductionist or reductionism like your argument is reductionist. Like that I hear that all the time. Like if you think in principles and you get to the essence, it's like because you integrated, therefore it's wrong. Right? Because you reduced it to the fundamental, it's simplistic, it's wrong. So you can't, you know, get to absolutes or or broad generalizations um, you know, they want to disintegrate that. They want to break that apart. Um, and yeah, they they fling that word. I don't know if they do that in, in philosophy departments a lot.
0: I don't recall hearing the word reductionist used in that sort of sense. You hear it in other senses, uh, like reducing the mind to the body, like in the mind-body, philosophy of mind sort of debates. Um, but in the sense you're talking about where it means thinking in essentials, Uh, yeah, I I don't think I encountered that until I left academia, but I was just thinking like, that's, uh, the, uh, maybe the logical implication of that is we can't even have concepts. Like, how can we use the term man to refer to both you and me? I mean, we're, we're, look at all these differences. I'm, I'm wearing shades and you're not, and you've got like this, uh, flowery shirt on and I've got a striped shirt and you're in New York and I'm in California you're failing to appreciate all the rich complexity of nuance and difference that divides you and I, Dave. How can you simplistically use this term, man, to refer to both of this? What a boneheaded, reductionist, simplistic outlook. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, do we have to now just throw out all general terms and concepts? Um, Right. Maybe that's uh, the ultimate. uh... I mean, that's Kant's doing. Um, so I, I think there is, uh, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, I think that is a a problem when you're not thinking in essentials and that there's something wrong with people who, who do. And yeah, I do encounter that, um, both, I, I think, um, well, definitely outside of academia, I've heard that, but I guess, uh, maybe in a different form inside, academia like Rand, just makes these sweeping statements about philosophy or um or about history i think you might hear about it um like um she has a very grand sweeping narrative of history about how there's the um uh the greco-roman era where there's uh Reason was uh, coming into prominence, and then you had the the Dark Ages for a thousand mm-hmm. years, and then you had the Renaissance. Um, but isn't it simplistic? Simplistic to talk about the Dark Ages. I mean, weren't there some discoveries in nineteenth-century France in the Carolingian Empire? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that's sort of uh, overly complex. To the point where, so I think a a good analogy, right, or saying that you sometimes hear is you're missing the, you're missing the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes happens, like, in in the field of history in particular. Um, You know, you can spend an entire lifetime career studying some, you know, France in the 1940s or whatever and you lose the big the, the big You're picture.
1: You right. lose the big it's just the narcissism of petty differences or it's i I tend to think it's dishonest you know but maybe our you know our academic academic systems have dis, you know they're like disintegration centers right they don't want you putting things together to make generalizations like everything is its own unique case right? So you really could not really acquire any knowledge or principles. Um, it's just kind of pretend world. It's like adults playing pretend in most of, in a lot of school today, outside of the hard sciences. I think it's uh, really just make-believe. It's John Dewey. It's whatever you feel like, you know, here's your A, we'll pass you. I still get my pension. Um, it's, it's a real scam, unfortunately. Uh, I'm wondering if the... Uh... Um, well, I was just thinking, like, with the school shooter phenomenon, right? Like that didn't, that wasn't even a case 50, 100 years ago. It was unheard of. And why are they shooting up schools, right? They're not shooting up malls or supermarkets, at least not that often. It's always schools. There's something nihilistic going on in in, in education.
0: I, I, uh, I know, um, I think Brad Thompson has written on that, the uh, school shooting phenomenon. Yeah, I think he argues that, S- schools are are breeding these school shooters uh, um by fostering a kind of nihilistic environment i I haven't read i think I might have read one article by his by him um a few years ago, but I think he's more recently written a more extensive piece in the wake of some school shootings. but yeah, I think it's a good question you know why why weren't there a hundred years ago <clears throat> school shootings like this? and um also you know why why do they happen more in america than other countries which i i think is true Mm -hmm. um and you mentioned john dewey i think that that could be part of it maybe the most important part of it so for anyone who doesn't know john dewey was a a uh he was a philosopher, a pragmatist philosopher, and he was influential on the field of education, uh, starting from the early 1900s, I believe. I, I, I don't know. I can't say a whole lot about John Dewey. I haven't read him firsthand. I've, um, but I, I think, uh, I guess as a, um, pragmatist i part i think part of what it is to be a pragmatist is to throw out um broad principles and just deal with very isolated narrow uh things that come up in the moments uh it's so it's like a a concrete bound you might say sort of approach um as opposed to a principled approach so well well there you go so if you're, if you're leading philosopher of education in the United States is a pragmatist and if pragmatism means throwing out broad principles and just dealing with narrow cases in the moment as they come up by the seat of your pants, um, well, I guess that could explain some of the very minutiae focus that we see and in academia and in this sort of, um, criticism we've been talking about about rand where she's making these broad sweeping statements that are lacking sufficient nuance she she's not uh sufficiently dealing with the concrete uh situations that come up in the moment she's taking too too long range too grand a scale uh picture well that sort of attitude i think uh, plausibly it comes from john dewey Mm -hmm. Um, who is a consequence of Kant as well I yeah i mean on. all these things you can always trace them back further right um and like we were saying kant himself maybe is a twist on Plato, which goes back thousands of years so mm-hmm. yeah right. in terms of like a relatively proximate cause in in the last century or so i think um dewey is probably a significant uh influence there for the for the worse mm-hmm. but i think they're they're there have been some encouraging trends in education, uh, the revival of Montessori sort of approach. Mm-hmm. There are some um, objectivists who have started schools and programs over the last decade or two that uh, I think have been growing a lot and have had a lot of success taking a different non deweyan approach to education. One that has an approach that has been more influenced by objectivism. Mm-hmm. That I think that's that is a a hopeful sign for the future. Yeah, it
1: was founded by objectivists, so um, yeah, I, yeah. Slowly, we're going to win out. Yeah,
0: like Guidepost Montessori School. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, there's the uh, Ohio Ground is the the I think the larger parents company of which Guidepost Montessori is one division, and then Lisa Van Dam is another example. She's had a, run a very successful school. In uh, Orange County, California. And she incorporates uh, uh, the philosophy of education ideas that Leonard Peikoff has uh, developed. So, yeah, there's some good signs in the education field.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And technology, unbelievable progress because it's not regulated. You know, like Peter Thiel says, you know, we regulate atoms, but not electrons. So the physical, you know, factories and things are under strict controls, but starting a new app, you don't need a permit or a license from the state. You could just try stuff. Mm. And that's why we're seeing supercomputers in our pockets.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to uh follow that approach approach writ large. And I try to make that point in some of my debates. Like I'll I'll talk about the, the 19th century and I'll say there's tremendous progress made in the 19th century when we had a more capitalist free market sort of economy. And we can see that if you look at the 20th century, well, the areas that have had the most freedom, like the technology sector, we've also seen the most progress in those industries. So that's you know further, advi- further evidence that freedom is the way to go, produces the most prosperity.
1: Yeah, I remember Econ Boy, he said, Oh, I looked up the 19th century it didn't grow as fast as the 19th." So I don't believe any of that. I don't, I don't know where he got yeah, this.
0: he. Um, it seems like what he didn't know himself what the statistics were but he looked up on the spot he and he found some, some website that's um, purported to have GDP figures or at least what I later learned was extrapolated GDP figures from the 19th century. So I looked into this myself a little bit after that debate. And um, uh, so what I found was that GDP, so I was saying 19th century was growing um, plausibly the fastest of any point in America's history. And he said, well, hey, I just found this study that showed actually there was more growth In the 20th century, uh, like more percentage growth in GDP for year. But then I looked into it and I saw that GDP wasn't even kept as a statistic until I think the 1930s. So I don't think there are any statistics on GDP. What one can do is try to make extrapolations looking backwards. Um, Maybe it's kind of like, I don't know, doing a climate model where you plug in some figures and then. Uh, you adjust some variables or whatever, and then you extrapolate, okay, well, maybe um, it was this in the 19th century. But I don't think we have any hard data uh, on GDP. So, and, and this was just one website as well. So I don't really put my, much weight on this, this one website, which he found in the moment um, as to you know what were the actual GDP figures in the 19th century. Um, I would want to look into it more and see you know how reliable are these extrapolations
1: you brought up concrete indoor plumbing planes trains electricity automobiles you know those are concrete you know we were farmers subsistence farmers now we have these skyscrapers and and amazing means of transportation so you know i mean we've seen obviously progress in the 20th century but mostly in technology not i mean you know planes today are the same as they were 60 years ago you know they just have wi-fi Right. But fundamentally, speed hasn't changed and comfort hasn't changed.
0: Um, and yeah. And actually, we've, in some way, we've gone backwards because we used to have a supersonic air travel, the, the Concorde, I believe it was called. And then that went away for a while. And uh, there's this new company, Boom, yeah. which is uh, uh, more recent, which is trying to bring supersonic flight back. And I think that, uh, I don't know when they're for, I think I remember hearing, like, in about 2030, maybe they'll have their first flights. Um, maybe they'll do test flights before then. But anyway, yeah, I think we, we've gone backwards in some ways, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, in, in that debate, I, in, in many of these debates, I, I point to the, the inventions that were made in the 19th century and um, I would like to look into this more, but my general sense is that the rate of inventions isn't as quick as it used to be. And in the places where maybe it is, like the tech sector, um, that's the area where we have most freedom. So I, I think mm-hmm. you can still make the case, you know, whichever century you're looking at, that uh, freedom is the most conducive to prosperity and progress.
1: Yeah, it just cause and effect. I mean that's the point of thinking in essentials. Like, what is the cause of innovation? And if you if we live in a time period where that cause is interrupted by controls and coercion and force, you're just never going to see innovation. That that's the it's so helpful to think in those to identify those principles because then you don't have to just get lost in statistics. I mean, those yeah. you still need the statistics, but you get the the foundation of progress.
0: Um, right yeah so the 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 point that reason is man's means of survival and that force is anti-reason and negates and paralyzes the minds Mm -hmm. well there's your you know very deep philosophical explanation of why it is that when we have the most freedom in a society we have the most uh progress because that's the area where reason is free to function and do its uh produce come up with new ideas and uh, make them a reality Uh, So I I try to do both of those things when I have these conversations is give that sort of philosophical explanation of why it is that um, we have the most progress in the areas that are the freest of coercion, but then also be able to give the concrete examples that bear that out. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm always honing both of those, trying to do better at being able to cite historical data and also, um, refine the way I make the philosophical argument. So it's very polished and so forth. And that's something that I, I think I'll get better at with practice, but yeah, yeah I think you need both, both of
1: those. Need both. Um, the way I heard it best described is, you know, obviously we survive through reason and we use our rational faculty to organize reality, to meet our needs through transforming nature. Um, those those are powerful big ideas and people have again there's such narrow concrete boundedness sometimes it won't click you know um with the modern culture it will though so those arguments are excellent for sure but so anyway we've gone you know well over two hours um i don't know how much time you have
0: but uh i'm just looking at my battery right now because uh I, I will need to get a power port cord to plug in my my laptop if if we go too much longer. But I, I'm happy to keep talking if you like. Um, did you have a cutoff time where you, you had to go?
1: Well, it's not a hard cutoff, you know. I unless you had you know some questions for me or I don't know some other. I mean, I could stay a, a bit longer, um, but I I don't know how much. I mean, if you wanted to post a four hour video on your Page, or you know, I figure. I, to- I
0: think my my longest one is over three hours. I don't think I've had any four hours one, but um, I don't particularly want to or particularly not want to. Um, I, I'm just uh, looking at my list here of things that we've uh, we discussed a bit beforehand to see if there's anything else I want to bring up right now. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I think we've um, said at least something about all of these points. So I, I don't really have anything else, which I'm like, I, uh, I have to bring up before we leave. Um, but, but as I said, I, if there's other things you want to talk about, I'm happy to talk more. So
1: well, I guess for now, I think maybe we could put a bookmark and we can always okay. do it at the end, you know, it's over two hours. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, are you going to be Going to Ocon this summer in Miami?
0: I plan to. Yeah, I did get the, I already bought the ticket, the discounted ticket. So um, yeah, I plan to be in Miami. I
1: should be. I don't know. Because right now it's, I think it's like $2,500 or something. I didn't get the discounted rate. They really jacked the price up. I don't know. I might just hang out in the lobby because I have Uh some friends who live nearby. Um, Uh Uh-huh. It's other than Florida, the freest state in the country. You see everyone moving there.
0: Yeah, it does seem like maybe it's the... Uh, well, Texas, Austin, and then Florida seem to be the most popular defini- uh, destinations that I I think of uh, places I've heard about objectivists moving to. The two state. uh, Um states. Uh, uh, at least in some respects. There's the abortion laws of Texas. So... Not, but. Um, but yeah. In other respects, freer. I think you can also get uh, day passes. Like even if you don't want to buy the whole thing, okay. Maybe there's certain days, right? Can... Like the realms
1: talk. Yeah, I don't know if how much that is. Like three hundred dollars or something.
0: Yeah, I don't know. But also there's a there's a live stream option. So if you wanted to go, maybe you could like get the whole thing on live stream. And then there's a particular day you wanted to go. Maybe you just buy a day pass for that day.
1: Yes, I was thinking of that. Yeah.
0: And some of these, they end up coming out on YouTube anyways for free that anybody can watch. You just have to, you know, wait longer for it.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll buy the, the thing, but I want to, you know, meet people. Like, you know, hang out in the lobby, even if I don't, because I just don't want to, I don't know if I want to drop two or three grand for a week. Um, but, but anyway, I think the Crowder idea with the, um, you know, getting a booth and filming yourself, you know, selfishness is a virtue changed my mind. The uh-huh. science, so you know have a seat let's talk about it you know and just
0: yeah.
1: I think that would really grow the channel I think it's a cool concept or abortion is a human right or I don't know something like that or I'm yeah. right I think Iron Rain was right should be your first video
0: <laughs>
1: Change my mind you know
0: well I'm intrigued by the idea so I'm really glad you mentioned that and yeah I think it's likely that I will try that at some points um yeah, I'm always in if anyone else out there has ideas for the channel or if you have feedback you want to give, I, I invite that. So uh yeah, feel free to throw those out. And uh yeah, I will uh I'll credit you if I if I end up doing that for, yeah,
1: for the idea. Shout out, man. But um, you know, maybe we could do something like this at Ocon. We could have another, I don't know, sit down or something.
0: Yeah. Uh I'd definitely be up for talking there or, you know. We could do another Zoom call sometime, but sure. uh, yeah, it was it was good chatting with you, and I think um, yeah, this was a pretty good place to put a bookmark for now, mm-hmm. before my my computer battery runs out.
1: Yeah, and listen, if you could send me the video, the recording, even if you don't post it, I'd be cool. I'd like to maybe listen to it again, to, um, but I certainly hope you post it. I think this was a good talk. Uh, maybe you know, edit out edit out something if if there's issues you don't uh one public but um yeah i think good good discussion i mean i'm sure mean you could go on for days
0: <laughs> yeah I, I think it's uh there's a good chance that this will be uh publishable material or at least a lot of it will mm-hmm. um uh but yeah in any case i can definitely give you access to it afterward
1: perfect man well all right thanks so much and uh yeah i'm gonna go get some food i didn't eat what time it's like 4:30. i
0: didn't eat anything so <laughs> All right, man. Okay. All right. I'll uh, catch you later.
1: Sounds good, man. I'll see you uh, this summer. Okay. All right. Have a good one.
0: Bye. Bye bye.